Section six of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume seven, August eighteen ninety six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Albemarle in Revolutionary Days by Dr. G. Brown Good, Assistant Secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, in charge of the U.S. National Museum. The key to the history of Virginia in colonial and revolutionary days is to be found in the study of its rivers. So numerous are these, and so wide, that in their lower portions they can be crossed only in boats, and so far do they extend into the interior that in early days the lines of travel were almost entirely along their courses. The region of the mountains was reached by roads which were parallel to the rivers, and the currents of western migration passed through gaps, or passes, in the Blue Ridge, which were traversed by the streams which form the headwaters. Between the principal rivers are peninsulas which stretch forth towards the sea like the fingers of a great hand. Acomac, or the eastern shore, between the Delaware and the Susquehanna, the Maryland Peninsula, between the Susquehanna and the Potomac, the northern neck, the domain of Lord Fairfax, between the Potomac and the Rappahannock, the Gloucester Peninsula, between the Rappahannock and the York, the Yorktown Peninsula, between the York and the Potomac, and Southside Virginia, between the James and the Dan Roanoke. The Shenandoah Valley, bounded by mountains rather than river courses, was similarly isolated, though by different means. Each of these had a history of its own to a certain extent distinct and peculiar. The people of these areas were isolated in early colonial days, intermarried chiefly with each other generation after generation, and formed permanent relationships which may be traced even now after the lapse of two centuries. At the time of the Revolution, there were only two roads traversing Virginia from north to south. One passed from Philadelphia by way of Newcastle, Delaware, Annapolis, Maryland, Alexandria, Fredericksburg, and Williamsburg, to the western settlements of North Carolina, crossing all rivers near the head of navigation except the James and the Roanoke. This road was serviceable only for passenger traffic, and for through travel was used almost exclusively by horsemen. The other was the Great Wagon Road from Philadelphia to the head of the Yadkin in North Carolina. It followed the course of the ancient Indian road used for centuries before by the tribes of the East in their excursions from the Atlantic seaboard to the great hunting grounds in Kentucky and Tennessee, and as early as 1750 was the principal line of commerce between the northern states and the Carolinas and Georgia. It traversed the entire length of the Shenandoah Valley, crossing the Potomac some 20 miles above Harper's Ferry, near the mouth of the Conococheague Creek. It was the position of the Conococheague upon this great highway which gave it such prominence in the days when the site of the national capital was being selected, and which almost led to the location of the capital here, rather than where it now stands. The main artery of Virginia was the James, and it was to the fact that the country of Albemarle was near its head, and at that time almost upon the western frontier, that its peculiar relation to the events of the Revolution was due. Twenty-five miles east of Monticello is the great fork of the James River, which at that time was considered to be its head. 
here two streams converge to form one greater one the northernmost is the riviana which rises on the eastern slopes of the blue ridge then flows by charlottesville and through the pass at monticello the southernmost is the fluvana rising far to the west in the midst of the alleghanies breaking through the blue ridge at balcony falls close to the natural bridge a hundred miles or more above its junction with the Ravana. this which is far the more important of the two is now called the upper james the names of these streams are monuments to the loyalty of the early colonists the james bears the name of the monarch who ruled over england when virginia was planted and Rivanna and Fluvanna were named for his granddaughter, Queen Anne, for whom also were named the Rapid Anne, which we crossed on our way hither, as well as the South Anna and the North Anna, which drain the region just to the eastward. Rivanna was compounded by some enthusiast for the two words river and Anna. Fluvanna is precisely the same, except that he used the Latin equivalent for the word river the old country of albemarle much larger at the beginning of the revolution than now occupied the triangle formed by the blue ridge on the west the fluvanna on the south and the north divide of the ravanna basin on the north in the southeastern angle of the country which in seventeen seventy seven was set aside in the county of fluvanna was the place called point of fork an important military station in the revolution while twenty miles above, on the Fluvanna, or James, was old Albemarle Court House, also a supply station. Charlottesville, in 1776, had only recently become the county seat. A courthouse and a tavern had been built, and in 1779 a group of a dozen houses had grown up about them. A considerable number of families lived in the vicinity, recent arrivals from Tidewater, Virginia, these people lived in comfort, though in great simplicity, upon the vast plantations which they owned, this region being upon the frontier. Thomas Jefferson's father was one of the earliest settlers here, and he himself was perhaps the first white child born in this region. At the time of his birth, in 1743, buffalo still abounded in the neighborhood. Ten years before, a buffalo calf had been captured just across the Blue Ridge, and taken as a gift to the governor of Williamsburg. The Huguenot colonists at Manikintown, fifty miles down the James, kept buffalo in domestication for milk and beef. A trail frequented by the buffalo herds crossed the Blue Ridge at Rockfish Gap, twenty-four miles west of Charlottesville, passed the Shenandoah at a ford near Staunton, and afterward over the next range by a passage still known as Buffalo Gap, into the beautiful valleys, then as present, called the cow pasture and the calf pasture, doubtless because of the presence there of buffalo herds in the days when they were named. The inhabitants were still collecting bounties in tobacco for the wolves which they killed with their guns or enticed into pitfalls. The stream called Wolf Trap Branch, near Charlottesville, preserves its name by the memory of those times. I have myself seen in this locality pits partially filled up, which were used as wolf traps not half a century ago, and have talked with a man whose father had seen great herds of buffalo crossing the Roanoke River less than a hundred miles southeast of Charlottesville at a point still called Buffalo Ford. I mention these circumstances simply to give an idea of the solitude and seclusion of this region at the time of the Revolution. 
it was because of its very remoteness that congress decided upon it in seventeen seventy nine as a place for the detention of the prisoners of war at that time quartered at cambridge in massachusetts these were the so-called convention troops the captive army of burgoyne which had surrendered to gates at saratoga october twelfth seventeen seventy seven this is not the place to discuss what seems to have been very bad faith upon the part of our government which did not keep its pledges but retained those captured troops for four years as prisoners of war notwithstanding the agreement made by gates and confirmed by congress that they should at once be sent to england on parole two years after the saratoga convention they were still confined in massachusetts they were marched in the dead of winter seven hundred miles from boston to charlottesville the number surrendered at saratoga was five thousand seven hundred and ninety one of whom two thousand four hundred and twelve were germans and hessians the number brought to virginia was of course somewhat less but how much less there is no means of ascertaining we know however that a year later their numbers had been reduced by death desertion and partial exchanges to about twenty one hundred they arrived in january at charlottesville where little preparation had been made to receive them one who was present at the time has left the following description as to the men the situation was truly horrible after the hard shifts they had experienced in their march from the potomac they were instead of comfortable barracks conducted into a wood where a few log huts were just begun to be built the most part not covered over and all of them full of snow these men were obliged to clear out and cover over to secure themselves from the inclemency of the weather as quick as they could and in the course of two or three days rendered them a habitable but by no means a comfortable retirement what added greatly to the distresses of the men was the want of provisions as none had as yet arrived for the troops and for six days they subsisted on the meal of indian corn made into cakes the person who had the management of everything informed us that we were not expected till spring never was a country so destitute of every comfort provisions were not to be purchased for ten days the officers subsisted upon salt pork and indian corn made into cakes not a drop of any kind of spirit what little there was had already been consumed by the first and second brigades many officers to comfort themselves put red pepper into water to drink by way of cordial on the arrival of the troops at charlottesville the officers what with vexation and to keep out the cold drank rather freely of an abominable liquor called peach brandy which if drunk to excess the fumes raise an absolute delirium and in their cups several were guilty of deeds that would admit of no apology the inhabitants must have actually thought us mad for in the course of three or four days there were no less than six or seven duels fought the officers were allowed to go into the surrounding country in search of quarters the englishmen with a fixed circuit which extended beyond richmond on the east the germans within a similar circuit chiefly within the shenandoah valley and including staunton captain aubrey has left a most interesting account of his experiences in his book of travels published in london in seventeen eighty nine in the memoirs of the baroness von riesdesel who was with the german troops may be found a narrative which is even more instructive the barracks were about six miles north of charlottesville near ivy creek on a plantation now belonging to mr carr here the troops were detained until november seventeen eighty when the advance of the british through the carolinas rendering their capture probable they were marched northward 
the british were moved to maryland and thence to connecticut the germans to winchester in the shenandoah valley some of the germans it is said were quartered upon the estate of general daniel morgan in what is now clark county and were employed by him to build the great stone mansion still standing which he named saratoga in memory of the place associated with his triumph and their defeat in seventeen eighty a considerable number of other prisoners captured at the cowpens and in south carolina were also brought to albemarle these men were liberated by the british at the time of tarleton's raid it is a curious fact that some who had married here while in captivity deserted from the british lines at yorktown and returned here to live it is said that some of their descendants still live in albemarle the position of albemarle upon the frontier again gave it prominence in seventeen eighty one when the governor and legislature of virginia having been driven from richmond by the british invasion charlottesville became the temporary capital of the state it should be remembered that it was only in the closing scenes of the war which took place upon the soil of virginia for the first five years all the battles were in the northern colonies in seventeen eighty however charleston south carolina was captured and the southern campaign began the virginia line was detached from the army of washington and with that of north carolina went south to oppose the advance of cornwallis other portions of the continental army followed notwithstanding the victories of the americans at utah springs king's mountain and the cowpens and the constant check to his progress which green and his militia auxiliaries interposed cornwallis strongly reinforced by the tory partisans of georgia and the carolinas slowly advanced toward virginia on may twentieth seventeen eighty one he reached petersburg by way of wilmington another army under benedict arnold had five months before invaded the valley of the james which they ascended to petersburg and richmond virginia was at this time in a most helpless condition all the able-bodied men were in the continental army the militia were without arms and congress seemed unable to respond to their appeals for help in those days putty had not been invented and the glass in the windows of houses was held together by lead so great was the need for bullets that the windows were destroyed to obtain them major john pryor commissary stationed at charlottesville in june seventeen seventy eight wrote to colonel davies at staunton that he had sent by expresses to every probable house within forty miles extent along the southwest mountains to collect what lead can be found in the windows and elsewhere all southern virginia was ravaged by a motley horde armed with torch and sword who traversed it under the leadership of colonel banister tarleton a dashing officer of the dragoons who was followed by hundreds of tory partisans from the carolinas so shameful were the depredations that an officer in cornwallis's army denounced them as a disgrace to civilization henry clay at that time a boy of four years of age living near hanover courthouse remembered how the troopers desecrated the newly made grave of his father who had died only a few days before piercing it on every side with their sabres in search of hidden treasure the british having found little in the way of booty or resistance at richmond slowly proceeded up the james at the point of fork already mentioned as being in old albemarle and twenty-five miles to the east of monticello the americans had an important military depot under the charge of baron von steuben with a small body of troops the british colonel simcoe with his battalion of queen's rangers was sent to dislodge him 
which he did in a manner at the time not considered creditable to the american commander cornwallis also in june detached tarleton with one hundred and eighty troopers from his own legion seventy mounted infantrymen and a gang of carolina tories to go to charlottesville to capture governor jefferson and the legislature tarleton selected a secluded route up the valley of the south anna by way of louisa courthouse and on the morning of june fourth seventeen eighty one had approached to within ten miles of charlottesville on the east but for the courage of a man whose name is still remembered his plan would have been a perfect success john joette a scout and partisan then twenty-three years of age suspected the designs of the british cut his way through the front of the column and having a very fleet horse reached charlottesville two hours in advance and gave warning to the legislature and also got a messenger to monticello to give warning to mr jefferson and to several members of the legislature who were residing at his house this man was the grandfather of a citizen of washington who many of us personally know rear admiral james e joett of the navy the legislature adjourned with astonishing rapidity to staunton on the other side of the blue ridge and only seven were captured shortly afterward they were again stampeded and took to the mountains still farther west the cause of their flight was somewhat curious a company of virginia troops marching northward approached staunton the colors flying and drums beating the people of this region had never before seen soldiers in uniform and knew only the buckskin-clad rangers of their own region the country people supposed the advancing column to be that of cornwallis and gave a false alarm when tarleton's white-coated troopers reached the crest of monticello governor jefferson was not there he was safe in the woods on carter's mountain the elevation next to monticello on the south and his family were at enniscorthy colonel carter's plantation about six miles away visitors to monticello are often told that mr jefferson made his escape from the house by a sort of passage which connected it with the outbuildings in this story there is no truth the circumstances of his flight are well remembered by his descendants and there is an interesting memorandum in mr jefferson's own handwriting in the possession of his grandson dr w c n randolph of charlottesville joette's first messenger arrived at monticello at sunrise governor jefferson and the members of the legislature who were with him quietly took breakfast after which his guests departed for charlottesville and he after ordering some servants to hide the household silver under the floor of the front porch occupied himself in packing up his papers about two hours after another messenger a mr hudson rode up to tell him that the british were about to ascend the mountain he at once sent his family to enniscorthy and ordered his saddle-horse which was being newly shod at the blacksmith's shop on the plantation carrying his papers sword and field-glass he made his way to a place on carter's mountain whence he could see charlottesville and the surrounding country after a while not being able to see any troops he started back home but finding that he had left his sword returned to get it looking again he saw a large detachment of dragoons in the streets of charlottesville and then mounted his horse and proceeded to Enniscorthy. In the meantime, a detachment of troops under the command of Captain McLeod had ascended the mountain from the opposite side and were searching for him at Monticello. But for the loss of his sword, he would doubtless have returned home and been captured. 
when the troops reached the house the two negroes martin and caesar were still packing away the valuables under the porch through an opening made by lifting some of the planks in the floor when the soldiers came up the planks were replaced and one of the negroes was imprisoned for eighteen hours it was afterward ascertained that colonel tarleton had given positive orders to have the governor captured if possible but that none of his property should be destroyed and this order was strictly carried out after laying waste the surrounding region tarleton rejoined cornwallis who had now encamped upon a plantation called elk hill just below the point of fork which belonged to mr jefferson general lafayette was at this time assembling his forces in the vicinity of culpeper courthouse about fifty miles to the northward he was reinforced by wayne's army at raccoon ford on the rapid ann very near to cedar mountain he traversed louisa the next county to the northeast of us crossed the north anna at brock's bridge opened a road through the woods still known as the marquis road and passed on in rapid pursuit of cornwallis who had begun his retreat down the james the boy general soon drove his adversary to the end of the yorktown peninsula where cornwallis hoped to get help from the british fleet what happened there between the thirtieth of july and the ninth of october is needless for me to relate before closing i must refer to some of the historical personages whose lives were passed in the region which surrounds us it is to be regretted that monticello is but a little mountain in fact as well as in name if it were fifteen hundred feet higher and we were all provided with telescopes i could show you many things of interest here and there along the banks of the james i might point out the homes of six of the seven virginians who signed the declaration of independence we might see the old courthouse in hanover twenty miles to the east where patrick henry pleading in the famous parsons cause in seventeen sixty three declared that the burgesses in virginia were the only authority who could give force to the laws for the government of the colony i could show you still closer in louisa the home of dabney carr who proposed in the house of burgesses in seventeen seventy three the plan for committees of correspondence to be organized for mutual protection in the several colonies which were so useful in the earliest days of the revolution we could also see old st john's church in richmond where in seventeen seventy five at the meeting of the house of burgesses henry defied the british crown crying give me liberty or give me death and the spot where he died at red hill just beyond willis's mountain to the southeast we could see what we have already seen once to-day fifty miles to the northward the region of culpeper whence the minutemen marched in seventeen seventy five with their rattlesnake flag and the motto liberty or death upon their hunting shirts to the defeat of lord dunmore at great bridge with john marshall afterward chief justice of the united states in their rank in this quarter we could also see the ancestral home of madison the champion of the constitution looking to the northwest beyond the blue ridge we might see the region of the lower shenandoah whence marched two regiments of buckskin clad riflemen to boston at the alarm of lexington and the passes through which washington journeyed in his early expeditions to the westward over the blue ridge not many miles away we might seek out the birthplace of general arthur campbell the hero of king's mountain and that of john seaver the founder of the state of franklin afterward tennessee 
the first commonwealth beyond the Alleghenies, and also the spot where Abram Linkhorn, grandfather of the president, married, lived, and was captain of a company of militia organized in 1776 for the defense of the western frontier. Still nearer, almost at the base of Monticello, the birthplace of General George Rogers Clark, who by his victory over the British and Indians at Fort Vincennes in 1781 saved the Northwest to the United States, a man the value of whose services to the nation at this time were second only to those of Washington, and away to the southward the spot where General Thomas Sumter was born. Our eyes, still turned to the west, would traverse the great frontier country of Augusta, whose western boundary extended, in accordance with the charter of 1609, to the Pacific, and whose actual limits, at that time undisputed, were upon the shores of the Mississippi. After the surrender of Cornwallis, in this region were centered in large degree the future destinies of America. The American states, writes Cook, were now either to set up as separate nations or to enter into a durable union, and the latter policy was strongly urged by Virginia. It was necessary to state this fact. The state's right record of the Commonwealth has produced the impression that the sentiment of union was not strong in the people. The contrary is the fact. From the first, the Virginians were the foremost advocates of union and made every sacrifice to effect it. To bring it about, Virginia began by surrendering a principality. The eastern region beyond the Ohio, now the states of Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois, was part of her domain under her charter. Her right to it rested upon as firm a basis as the right of any other commonwealth to her own domain, and if there was any question of the Virginia title by charter, she could assert her right by conquest. The region had been wrested from the British by a Virginian commanding Virginian troops. The people had taken the oath of allegiance to the Commonwealth of Virginia, and her title to the entire territory was thus indisputable. The country north of the Ohio River was a part of Virginia under her original charter, remained a portion of her domain when, in May 1776, she declared herself an independent Commonwealth before there was any union, and she herself succeeded to all the rights of the crown. These rights she now abandoned, and her action was the result of an enlarged patriotism and devotion to the cause of Union. The Articles of Confederation had not been adopted by all the colonies. Some of them still held back. They were unwilling to recognize the Virginia title, but would accede to the Confederation provided Congress would fix the western limits of the states claiming to extend to the Mississippi or the South Sea. The issue was thus distinctly presented the surrender of the territory and union, or its retention and disunion. Virginia decided for union, and, January 1781, agreed to cede the country to the federal government. In 1783, Congress accepted her terms, and in 1787 passed an ordinance for the government of the territory. Nothing now remained to complete the activities of this period of the Revolution but the adoption of the Constitution and the election of Washington to the presidential chair. End of section 6